0: Our scripture for this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears hear Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen.
1: Oh, thanks, Jonathan. Um, And let me just add my um, thanks to Cade as well for coming and leading worship today. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. Um, My name's Frank. Um, If you haven't met me before, I'm one of the elders here. Um, And I've got the privilege of um, opening up the scriptures today. Um, so I wonder if you've ever set out to complete something, and then you found that it was a lot harder than you, uh, than you first thought. My wife, Debs, and I um, took a trip to Yosemite National Park, um, back in, I think it was back in 2019. And we um, decided that we really wanted to do the Yosemite Grand Tour, which is a, um, a hike of about 15 miles. Um, it involves about 4,500 feet of elevation gain. Um, now, I know that there's some seasoned hikers here in the Hallows who probably would make this hike look easy. Um, but for Debs and I, uh, we, we grew up in a country where the highest mountain is about the same size as Mount Cy. Um So we knew that this hike was going to be tough. And uh, we attempted to get going nice and early, but as is often the way in the Mayfield household, we were running a little bit behind schedule as we left our campsite um, and began the hike. So the first, the first half went really well and um, got amazing views over Half Dome. Um, we actually took a stove with us, so we made, we made hot pasta overlooking Half Dome. That was a, one of the best lunches I've ever had, I think. Um, and we were moving at a decent pace at that point. And um, we knew that like if we just kept going at a similar pace, um, we'd have absolutely no issues you know, making it back to our campsite um, before dark. So we carried on at a steady pace. And then we got to the top of um, Nevada Falls, which is six hundred foot high waterfall, and at that point you basically start like a steep descent like back into the valley um, and a few days ago um, before that, um Debs had done something to her, her, um, her ear, and she was basically suffering with like mild vertigo at the time. so as, as we started going down these like steep you know steeper steps, um she began to really struggle um and was kind of. Her balance was off, and it was like, um, you know, it wasn't easy for her at all. Um, and as our pace began to slow, it was almost as if the sun was like accelerating down over the horizon. So we get down Nevada Falls. Then there's another waterfall called Vernal Falls. It's about 300 foot high. And by the time we got to the top of that, it was n- nearly dark. And if you've ever been to Yosemite, this is, it's known as the Mist Trail. Because in the spring season, and that was the time of year we were there, These waterfalls are pumping so hard, there's just like sprays that come down, right? So literally everything is just soaking wet. And there's about 600 steps that come down um, that final waterfall. And we didn't have a head torch or a headlamp, as you guys call it here in in the U.S. Um, So we were making our way down these steps with basically like an iPhone torch. And Debs is there, like pitch dark. It's like we're getting blasted by spray everywhere. And we're literally like taking it like a step at a time, step at a time, step at a time. You know, thankfully, thankfully, we, you know, we did make it down in one piece. Um, but if we'd have like, if we'd have fallen like you know a foot or two off to the side on those steps, then it would have been game over. So we hadn't anticipated being in this scenario. We didn't have headlamps with us. We didn't have like an emer- any emergency kit with us. We didn't have like any way of like calling SOS because we, we were the, literally the only people out there at that point. There were, wasn't anyone else around. Um, yeah, we, we kind of, I would say, you know, vastly underestimated the challenge that that hike presented. So we learned a hard lesson that day. We weren't properly prepared. We didn't give ourselves enough time. And we didn't plan for a scenario where we'd be hiking down in the dark. So our passage for today is all about the cost of following Jesus. And it presents us with a clear challenge to carefully consider whether we want to embrace such a weighty calling, with such a weighty cost. Let me just pray for us as we uh, dive into this um, text together. Lord God, I thank you for everyone here. Um, thank you, Lord, for your, your deep love for us. Um, thank you so much that we'll never fathom um, the depths of your love um, for us. and um, We just thank you that we get the privilege of um, spending a lifetime work- working out how deep that love is and how glorious it is. Um, I pray, Lord, as we come to this text today, that you'd help us to, um, to sit under it with humble hearts and allow it to freshly challenge us in a way um, that, it, that it maybe needs to. And, and maybe um, for those here that are, are new, either um, looking into the Christian life, not yet a believer, or, or those who are just starting out in their Christian life, I just pray that you'd also be with them as well um, and help apply these words to, um, to them as well. Pray that in your name, Lord. Amen. So if you're new to the hallows, you might not know that a, a while ago we began a study in the book of Luke um, and uh, kind of paused in the summer and we, we, we took in the book of Daniel and the book of Philippians together. Um, and the plan now is to basically jump back into Luke um, and kind of finish off this, this kind of epic gospel. Um, so a little bit of background just to sort of like get us back up to speed um, with Luke. So Luke's written by a Gentile missionary doctor named Luke, funnily enough, Um, and he became one of the most important historians of the ancient world, writing not only the third of the four Gospels, which word for word is the longest book in the New Testament, but also the book of Acts, which makes his contribution to the New Testament bigger than any other writer. And if you look back at the very first verses in Luke's Gospel, we read of Luke's goal in writing his Gospel So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 say this. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So, most theologians agree that Luke's gospel is thoroughly Gentile in its spirit and outlook, and it's got a humanity to it that's hard to miss, as it deals with real men and real women and their needs. And the spread of the good news beyond the bounds of the Israelite nation is a major theme in Luke's gospel and in Acts as well. And Luke's desire was that his gospel account would ripple out throughout the Roman Empire and cause many Gentiles to hear about Jesus and then choose to follow him. So with this in mind, it's interesting interesting to note that Luke presents Jesus as a straight shooting, dare I say abrasive rabbi, who utters many hard sayings that can cause offense to his hearers. I had a running joke with Debs that in our Luke series, (laughs) each passage that I um, was kind of down to preach for was was a really hard text. Um, If you'll recall, uh, I spoke on Luke 12, 49 to 53, where Jesus says that he hasn't come to bring peace on earth, but division. And then I I had Luke 12, 57 to 59, which deals with the realities of hell. And then Luke 13, 22 to 30, where Jesus claims he alone is the only way to God. So when I picked up my Bible and I looked at the passage that I was going to preach on today, I had to laugh to myself as I read these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot read Luke's gospel without coming face to face with the undiluted, raw and real Jesus this isn't the stained glass window, Jesus with the perfect white skin, the blue eyes and the flowing blonde hair. This isn't the cool dude Jesus who is easy to be around because he doesn't take anything too seriously. This isn't the Jesus who blesses us in our pursuit of the comfortable life. No, Jesus isn't afraid to rattle our cages. Luke, Luke's Jesus speaks hard truths to us that can unsettle us, maybe even offend us. And Luke's Jesus often surprises us with his approach, which rather than drawing people in, on many occasions repelled people away from him. But if we stop and think about it, Jesus is honest and truthful about things because he loves people. Jesus doesn't want to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, as to do so would be unloving. He would rather have a few disciples who are truly committed to following him The many disciples who will stick close to him all the while the going is good, but will quickly leave when the going gets tough. Our passage for today is a classic example in Luke of Jesus giving people hard truths for their own good out of love for them. So let's dive into it together. So the passage splits into three parts. The first part is two hard sayings. The second part is two illustrations, and then the third part is one warning. So let's dive into the two hard sayings then. Before we do that, it's important to note something in verse 25. We read here that there were great crowds that were traveling along with him. And it is to these crowds that Jesus addresses when he begins to speak. And this is important because his audience, on the whole, have not yet made a commitment to follow him. They've come to see this Jesus because his reputation precedes him. They want to see for themselves if he lives up to the hype. So Jesus turns to the crowd of seekers and he says something that you would never expect. If anyone would come to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. This is the exact opposite of how to win friends and influence people. (laughs) If Jesus were a salesman for life in the kingdom of God, he would be fired on the spot. What is Jesus thinking? Why is he telling these eager seekers who've made the effort to come out and follow him that first they should adopt a posture of hate towards their own families? Isn't this the same Jesus that upholds the Ten Commandments perfectly, including the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother? The same Jesus who said to love even your enemies, which surely means we're supposed to love our own wife and kids, right? Isn't this the same Jesus who made provisions for his own mother as he was dying on the cross, so that she would be taken care of in his absence? So what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus, we must remember, was a master of communication who knew when to use shocking words to get his point across. Could it be that in this instance, we have an example of Jesus carefully using his words to make the crowd stop and think more deeply about him? You see, Jesus wasn't interested in the quantity of followers he could gain in his three short years of ministry. He was concerned with the quality of those followers. Jesus wasn't interested in having a large but loosely engaged base. He was about the work of drawing in men and women who were willing to follow him no matter the sacrifice. Jesus knew full well that many in his audience would face a difficult dilemma if they choose to follow him. For some, it would mean that their parents would put them out of the home, making them homeless. For others, it would mean the end of a marriage if the unbelieving spouse rejects their Christ-following spouse. For others, it would mean estrangement from their kids. Jesus loves his listeners enough to level with them. You might have to choose between me and them, says Jesus. Who will it be? It is this choice that makes sense of Jesus' use of the word hate here. If you look at the corresponding chapter, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39, Jesus is recorded as saying, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. This is the most common meaning for the word hate in the scriptures, translating into English as to love less. So Jesus' use of the word hate here, then, most likely means that our love and devotion to Jesus has to come first if we are to be his disciples. Our love for him must be greater than our love for our families, greater even than our love for ourselves. Jesus' second hard saying goes like this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So this saying is less about the decision to follow Jesus and then it's, it's more about the process of discipleship once a person commits to following Jesus. Bearing the cross refers to a willingness to bear pain and persecution as a result of following Jesus. For Jesus' original hearers, bearing, bearing one's cross might well have meant imprisonment, beatings, maybe even death at the hands of those who rejected Jesus as the true Messiah. Jesus, the master communicator then, goes on to give his audience two illustrations. The first is of a prudent builder, and the second is of a wise king. Let's take a look at the builder first. Verse 28 to 30 says, Which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. One of the things that I admire the most about American culture is your attitude to DIY. In my native UK, it's almost unheard of for someone to do their own roofing or to completely redesign their kitchen, it just, just doesn't happen. And you guys, on the other hand, you can't get enough of a good house project. If anyone knows Jordan Keister, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's something that it's rubbed off on Debs and I, and I think that's honestly one of the best things about American culture that we've, I guess, taken on board. Um, and it's really changed our kind of approach to our house and garden. So most people in the room, I, can, I think I can safely say, can identify with the careful consideration in this first illustration. Planning and budgeting is a key step in any project. To skip this step is dangerous because if we do, we flirt with the possibility of our project grinding to a halt when we run out of funds to continue paying for the materials and tools required to get the job done. The second illustration It's much harder for us to relate to, but it makes just as powerful a point about considering following Jesus. Let's read it again. Verse 31 to 32 says, Or what king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one that comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Notice how both the builder and the king sit down and work things through in their heads. The king here is figuring out if he's got the military clout to beat this other rival king. Both illustrations, they involve weighty matters. Building a tower and waging war are huge endeavors They involve great cost and great sacrifice. All the more reason then, to think long and hard before one commits. The message is loud and clear for Jesus' listeners. Jesus isn't sweetening the deal, he is laying clearly out for them that following him is a weighty commitment involving a huge degree of sacrifice. Jesus loves the people from them too much to hide the reality of a life of Christian discipleship from them. Jesus ends his illustrations by linking the cost of the Christian life to one's possessions. According to Jesus, one must renounce all their possessions if they want to embark on the arduous journey that is the Christian life. Similarly to Jesus' teaching on the would-be disciples' attitude towards family and self, Jesus is saying here that the person who puts their possessions first rather than Jesus first cannot start down that long narrow roads of Christian discipleship. Now this doesn't mean that after the service we should all go to goodwill and just give every last thing that we earn away. There are examples in the New Testament of people who were very, very materially wealthy who were pillars in the early church, such as Lydia, a dealer in fine cloth who we can read about in Acts 16 and also in Philippians, the book that we just finished recently. Paul didn't order order Lydia to give up all she had for the sake of the gospel. But here's the thing. Lydia used her material wealth to radically bless the fledgling church in Philippi, hosting Christian gatherings in her own home. I believe Lydia's attitude to her possessions is the kind of attitude Jesus is alluding to here in verse 27. Christ's followers ought to see their possessions are simply on loan from God. And if God calls us to use our possessions and our money to bless the work of his kingdom, we should be ready to joyfully give of the things that God has graciously given us, things that we don't deserve, to further build his kingdom. The two illustrations of building and warfare clearly teach us that the Christian life is long, it is costly, and it is hard. I wonder if you've ever had a friend or a family member make a commitment of faith in Jesus, only to fall away relatively soon after. Painfully, I can name two friends who I shared the gospel with at university, who both made confessions of faith, with one getting baptized, only to renounce Christ after a year or two. When I was studying this passage, I was challenged that maybe I didn't help my friend's to sit down and really think long and hard about whether they were ready to make a lifelong commitment to following Jesus, come what may. Perhaps I've stopped short of the kind of candor Jesus shows here as he lays down in no uncertain terms how arduous and costly the Christian life really is. If our passage for today focuses squarely on the cost of following Jesus, We must look elsewhere in the scriptures for a counterweight to this text, which I believe we find in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 45, which reads, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of God. Is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he finds one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Just as an aside, when we come to a particular text in our Bibles, we must ask, what's the context? And also, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about the passage that I'm reading? In this way, we let Scripture interpret Scripture and avoid going down rabbit holes and creating doctrines that hang off a verse here or a verse there. Praise God that we have the full counsel of scripture and the Holy Spirit to help us make sense of his word. So why, why is Matthew 13, 44-45 a good companion text for our text for today? Well, if our passage for today is concerned with all the things that we might have to sacrifice... In order to follow Jesus, then matthew 13 forty four to forty five is concerned with what we gain when we forsake everybody and everything to follow Jesus matthew thirteen forty four to forty five describes the kingdom of God, which is life with Jesus, as buried treasure and a pearl of immense value. Both illustrations show that once a person sees the infinite worth of Jesus and that following him is life in all its fullness, John 10 verse 10, then they are glad to give up all they have in order to gain him. Following Jesus is undoubtedly a weighty and costly thing as our passage for today teaches us. But this passage in Matthew teaches us That even if our allegiance to Jesus means we lose everything, that loss is like a single drop of water compared with an entire ocean of all that we gain in Christ. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus is worth it. If we give our lives to following him, then we will forever be plumbing the depths of his love, his grace, his patience. His kindness. Just like a jewel that one can study from every angle, and the light catches it in a slightly different way every time, so it is with Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. Knowing him is the greatest privilege in the entire universe. One facet of Jesus' beauty is that he counted the cost for you and me. If we flick ahead to our, in our Bibles to Luke, chapter 22, verses 40 to 42, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest, and it reads like this. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here is Jesus counting the cost for you and me. He became so overcome with the price he would pay for humanity's salvation that he began to sweat drops of blood. Jesus pleaded with his father to show him another way, a way with a smaller price, an easier way, But then he utters those oh-so-famous words, not my will, but yours be done. God the Father didn't answer Jesus' prayer. No other way for humanity's salvation was offered. And so Jesus paid the ultimate price by laying down his life so you and I could be forgiven. Counting the cost for Jesus meant bearing the fullness of God's wrath and the just punishment for the sins of the world so that we don't have to. Jesus loved us enough to count the cost and do the necessary work to open the door of salvation to us. He saw the cost as worth it for the many souls he would save. After Jesus had paid the ultimate price with his life, he rose again defeating death, and proved once and for all that he is the Son of God, that he is worthy of worship, and that he is worth leaving everything for. The scriptures liken our relationship with Jesus to a bride and a husband. For marriage to work well, it involves both parties making a sacrifice for the other to make the relationship possible. In marriage... We forsake all others, promising to be faithful to our spouse. We renounce our own autonomy as we lay down our own agendas and promise to think in terms of we rather than I. For example, as much as it appeals to me, I can't go off and live in a van and travel the country doing outdoor activities as Debs has made it perfectly clear that she cannot do without her own bed and a real toilet. And on the other hand, Debs can't go and live in New York as much as the big city appeals to her. Because I really do not do well with life in a big city. So it is with our life with Christ. If we give our lives to Jesus, then we are no longer our own. And we are no longer free to live as we please. You may have heard it said that Jesus has done everything for us. And asks nothing in return promise and of course in a salvation sense this is absolutely true when it comes to salvation we do not contribute in any way whatsoever jesus does all the work to save us when it comes to discipleship to the rest of our lives with jesus he asks for everything we're saved by grace alone through faith alone but upon receiving salvation jesus says Hate your life, take up your cross, do not enter into this lightly. You have to be willing for the Christian life to cost you everything. Our passage today ends with a warning from Jesus. Verses 34 to 35 read, Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. So what is Jesus getting at here with this kind of slightly strange aside about salt? Well, one of the uses for salt in the ancient world was as a fertilizer. So the salt would be taken from around the Dead Sea, and it would be used to enrich the soil. But its effects didn't last long. And soon enough, the salt would have no effect on the fertility of of the ground. Scholar Daryl Bock comments that the modern day equivalent of the salt losing its saltiness is that of running out of gas. Recently, our lawnmower ran out of gas halfway through mowing the lawn, leaving one half neatly mowed and the other half overgrown. This is what Jesus is getting at here. A Christian who rejects Jesus and pulls out of the Christian life is like a lawnmower, only gets half the job done. Debs and I recently heard the sad news that our friend who used to lead our musical worship at our previous church in London has turned his back on Jesus and the church and left his wife. We were stunned when we heard this, as his faith and zeal were a huge encouragement to Debs and I. It was hard to wrap our heads around how A man who was being used by God in such powerful ways was now not following Jesus at all. Most of the songs that we used to sing in our old church were songs that he had written. And they were drenched in gospel truth as well as being beautifully crafted musically. Friends, this is what Jesus is warning about here. He's warning us to count the cost So that we don't get halfway through the Christian life only to drop out. The question on my mind when I got to this point in my preparation was, how do we last the course? What's the secret to longevity in the Christian life? Let me try and answer that question with another question. What is Jesus currently doing? Anyone want to have a stab at that? What is Je- what is Jesus doing like right now? Hebrews 7 verse 25 answers that question. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Here it is. Since he is always interceding for them. What is Jesus doing at this precise moment? He is praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for the Hallows Church. You see, Jesus is more committed to you finishing the race and joining him in glory than you realize. Jesus wants to save completely every last soul who gives their lives to God. Not only is Jesus praying now, But according to this verse, he always lives to intercede for us. Which means Jesus will not stop praying for you. He lives to pray for you. If you're feeling weak in your faith right now, let these words go deep into your soul. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus is committed to you. Jesus will never falter in his devotion to you. Not only is Jesus praying for us, he's also given us his Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9-11 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin. But the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. If you've made the decision to give your life to Jesus, then you have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead at work inside you. Just like Jesus, the Holy Spirit is deeply invested in us reaching the finish line in our Christian race. When we feel spiritually dull, even perhaps spiritually dead, the Holy Spirit is at work giving us new life, fresh energy, and renewed hope. Not only is Jesus praying for us, Not only do we have his spirit, but we also have one another. One reason why the church exists is because we can't do the Christian life alone. It's too hard. We need one another to spur us on and to refocus our eyes on Jesus when we we get discouraged. Our missional communities are where this type of mutual encouragement can flourish as we regularly meet in each other's homes to live out what it means to be the body of Christ, with each person bringing their unique gifts, personalities, and stories to the table for the edification of everyone else present. Missional communities provide the context for people to be authentic and vulnerable, sharing if they are struggling in their life with Jesus. This allows the rest of the group to cover them in prayer and practically support them in the hope that they emerge out of their season of discouragement and into a new season of joy and peace. Lastly then, how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, as I mentioned earlier, this passage is primarily for the seeker, someone who is interested in Jesus, but hasn't yet made a commitment to follow him. And if that's you today then I would encourage you, like the builder and the wise king, to sit down and deeply consider the cost of following Jesus. Life with Jesus is glorious, but it is also arduous. Please reach out if we can help you in any way in your consideration of Jesus and his promises. Next, if you're a young Christian today, Know that like a young plant, you are in a vulnerable position. Invest in building relationships with people who are further along in their Christian journey. and Make it a habit to meet regularly with other believers who can pray for you and strengthen you as you put down your roots into Jesus. Thirdly, if you're a Christian today and you're keenly feeling the cost of discipleship, then I would encourage you that Jesus is the pearl of great price and that he can give you a depth of joy that no other person or possession can bring. Know that Jesus sees your sacrifices and that he will reward you in heaven for living out his words. Matthew 16, 27. And lastly, if you've been a Christian for some time, And when you honestly appraise your life, you cannot really think of where where you're currently counting the cost for Christ. Then can I encourage you to ponder Jesus' words here in Luke 14? Jesus doesn't leave room for doubt that the Christian life will be painfully costly at times. Perhaps you could spend some time with the Lord over this next week asking him to reveal to you where you could be more sacrificial in your discipleship. Although the results of this reflection with God may lead to decisions that make your life materially harder, know that you will experience a a greater degree of joy as you are partnering with Jesus in the great work of expanding his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to give us the truth, um, the uncut version. Lord, you give us it, you give us it straight, and we we honour and respect and love you for that. Thank you that you don't try and get people to follow you by you know giving them a, a half truth or painting an overly rosy picture. Thank you, Lord, that that you tell us like it is, um, and I thank you for other areas of Scripture where. Um, it talks about what we gain when we give our lives to you. Thank you for that, that beautiful picture of you being like treasure um, and like a great pearl. And Lord, help us, Lord, when, we, when we're struggling, when we're, when we're finding it tough in the Christian life, when we're feeling discouraged and down and despondent, Lord, I pray that you would just remind us that not only are you worth it, Not only are you the pearl of great price that's infinitely more valuable than anything else we could ever get in this life, but also that you're praying for us, Lord, that you live to intercede for us and that you're so committed to getting us over the line, Lord. You're so committed to getting us um, so that we can stand before God on that final day um, and hear those words, good and faithful servant, um, be welcomed in. So yeah, I pray that you would keep and that you would sustain us, God and that you would you would help us to run the race with perseverance um, with your Holy Spirit at work in us. Pray for the rest of this time together. I uh, really pray that as we continue to um, sing, as we continue to um, encourage one another, as we take of communion, I pray that you would just really build us up, Lord, and that we'd walk out these doors just feeling um, so enriched and blessed. In your great name, amen.